Six Heroes of Planetary Defense, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Are we making progress toward avoiding the fate of the dinosaurs? That was the theme when I welcomed an international group of experts for the only public event at this year's Planetary Defense Conference. You'll hear their very encouraging reports on today's show, and we'll talk about what's ahead, including the first mission to test asteroid deflection. One of those experts is our own Bruce Betts. He'll stay with us for a Planetary Defense-centered edition of What's Up, including the return of the rubber asteroid of doom. I'm very grateful to everyone who took a moment to rate and review Planetary Radio in Apple Podcasts. I'm even more grateful to all of you who subscribed. No worries if you haven't gotten around to it. The cosmos and I are patient. Even giant planets have reason to worry about asteroid and comet impacts. Take a look at what Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 did to Jupiter in 1994. Ouch. You'll find the image at the top of the May 7 edition of The Downlink. Great space headlines, too, though Mars Helicopter Ingenuity has now completed a fifth flight across the Red Planet. I hope you'll join us for next week's show when I'll welcome back Ingenuity Project Manager Mimi Ong. And there's much more than news at planetary.org downlink. Our friends at Explore Mars have scheduled the very first Mars Innovation Forum, for May 25 to 27, and they've lined up a terrific collection of Red Planet All-Stars for this virtual event. I'll be moderating a session called Building and Creating on Mars, but I look forward to hearing all the great conversations. You can check it out and register at exploremars.org. The four-day 2021 Planetary Defense Conference ended on April 30th. Like so many other regular gatherings this year, participants had to meet online. This limitation doesn't seem to have limited the impressive agenda or the presentations by scores of leaders from around the world. As you'll hear, it once again included a carefully designed exercise, a simulation of an encounter with an asteroid that was as exciting as any movie and far more instructive. The Planetary Society was once again a primary sponsor of the PDC. What you're about to hear is almost all of the hour we were given to share the excitement in a live webinar. Each of our six outstanding panelists had a great story to tell. You'll hear them introduced as we go forward, so I'll stop wasting your time and take you directly to Thursday, April 29th, and the program we called Earthlings vs. Asteroids. What's the score? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are around uh, our beautiful planet. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, where I host our public radio series and podcast, Planetary Radio. We come to you today as part of the International Astronautical Academy's 2021 Planetary Defense Conference. It is the seventh biannual gathering of experts and policymakers from all over our pale blue dot. We'll hear from six of these passionate defenders of Earth. Think of this as a status report. By the end of the hour, we hope you'll have a better feel for what's being done to make sure that humanity doesn't go the way of the dinosaurs. Kelly Fast is the Program Manager for Near-Earth Object Observations Programs in NASA's 
Planetary Defense Coordination Office, where she works with the Planetary Defense Officer at NASA, Lindley Johnson. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, Matt. Thank you. What is the first order of business if we want to learn how to defend our planet from big rocks that might come our way? Well, the first order of business for planetary defense is to find the near-Earth asteroids and the near-Earth objects, uh, any asteroids or comets that come into Earth's neighborhood, and to figure out where they've been and where they're going to be in the future. If we don't know that something could pose an impact threat, then we can't take all of these other steps that you're going to hear about today also. So the first order of business is to find them. No doubt. Like our other panelists, you have uh, some slides that we're going to zip through, beginning with uh, this impressive collection of telescopes. Do they begin to give us an idea of what's being done at NASA to to find the NEOs that we don't know about yet? Oh, absolutely. This is the the bread and butter of uh, of planetary defense, just surveying the skies, looking for that moving point of light against the stars. And so these telescopes provided by uh, a number of institutions that are funded through NASA's program uh, are doing this every night, surveying the skies, looking for objects uh, or looking for uh, natural objects that might not already be in the catalog. And uh, these telescopes are provided by uh, the University of Hawaii with the PanStars survey and the U University of Arizona with Catalina Sky Survey. They're the kind of the most productive of the surveys being funded by NASA right now, producing most of the discoveries, but also complementing them uh, are the Atlas telescopes from the University of Hawaii. Also, uh, nice interagency coordination here with the U.S. Space Force on their space surveillance telescope and pulling asteroids out of the images that they take at night. Finally, uh, even repurposing a telescope that was developed for another purpose. Uh, NEOWISE is the repurposed uh, WISE uh, space telescope that is now full-time surveying for asteroids. wasn't designed to do that, but it's kind of a good pathfinder on the way to, to how to do this properly from space. And it's producing a lot of characterization information, size information about asteroids in the catalog. And then we uh, there are also many other observatories funded by the program involved in following up these discoveries and trying to make sure there's enough information to calculate the orbits to know where these objects are going to be in the future. Congress gave NASA a goal to uh, find 90% of the near-Earth asteroids that are 140 meters and larger in size. Now we want to find all of them that our telescopes can detect but this is a size range that would really pose a regional threat should uh, an object of that size impact Earth. So it's, it's kind of a good, good benchmark to go after. And the folks who do all the modeling are able to estimate that there's probably about 25,000 of those objects out there. We're only uh, about 40% of the way through, uh, but still plugging away every night. Uh, at the current discovery rate, it is gonna take more than 30 years to complete the survey but there are uh, efforts to look at next generation uh, telescopes to speed this up. But again, those telescopes I just showed you, they're just uh, plugging away every night. This pathfinding that I mentioned, like from the NEOWISE telescope, and, and also from a number of uh, studies done with the community, including with the National Academy of Sciences, all of them point toward the need to put a telescope in space and that it should have infrared capability in order to be able to yield size information and also to get these uh, discoveries of asteroids that might be very dark in color and harder to pick up from uh, telescopes on the ground that are looking in the optical and what our eyes can see. And something might be very large, but if it's very dark in color, it might be very faint. And ultimately, to speed up 
to speed up those discoveries of 140 meters and larger near-Earth asteroids and also any asteroids that are picked up by the survey, add those to the catalog and then be able to retire risk from them and, and hopefully not, but if there is something that poses uh, an impact threat to Earth, to discover it many, many years uh, ahead of time, decades ahead of time. Right now in the Planetary Defense Conference, uh, we are dealing with an asteroid scenario of a fictional uh, asteroid that was discovered only six months prior to impact and wrestling with those issues. We don't want to find ourselves in that type of a scenario. And so there are many reasons for then looking at what is the best way to speed up the survey and to uh, make sure that we have lots of time. And so this is what NASA is working on. And we're gonna hear more about that exercise from Paul Chodas, who is the evil genius out to destroy the Earth simulated fashion in that uh, exercise. We're also going to hear about work that is being done uh, all over the planet from some of our other panelists. But what about uh, worldwide uh, collaborative efforts to, to track and characterize NEOs? Right. Uh, our planetary defense officer likes to say that planetary defense is a team sport, and it does take a worldwide effort. There actually is that underway. The UN recommended a collaboration, the International Asteroid Warning Network. This is a collaboration of observatories and independent astronomers and space institutes and orbit calculators worldwide to bring their capabilities to bear on this uh, near-Earth asteroid planetary defense issue. And so there's a lot of contribution from uh, these different institutions and observatories in terms of following up the discoveries of asteroids, getting more observations to be able to determine their orbits, determine where they're going to be in the future, uh, doing modeling of what the uh, population might be or what impact effects might be. All of that coming together as part of an international collaboration, everybody working with their own institutions, everybody doing what they're already doing, but getting these communication channels in place so that if there ever is any sort of impact threat that needs to be addressed, that will be in place. And this group, uh, the International Asteroid Warning Network, also conducts its own coordinated observation campaigns, sometimes treating them as planetary defense exercises, their own little scenarios in order to. Uh, exercise these capabilities and these communication channels. And in fact, with uh, the asteroid Apophis, uh, there was a recent uh, observing campaign that's just wrapping up with Apophis, uh, where astronomers around the world were observing it to try to characterize it at this last opportunity before its 2029 close approach. So a very good collaboration. Speaking of international efforts, Gerhard Droschegen chairs the Space Mission Planning Advisory Group formerly of the European Space Agency. Gerhard now joins us from the University of Oldenburg. Welcome, Gerhard. We heard it's important to find objects that could pose a threat to Earth, but then it's the next question, what could you do? And of course, uh, one idea is to just move them out of the way to prevent a potential collision with Earth. And that's why this international group you mentioned, Space Mission Planning Advisory Group, has been established because any impact risk is global and it needs an international effort to try to do something. And this group gets together and discusses what can be done with a space mission if the object is real big and real threatening to avoid an impact. We've learned that not all asteroids are alike. We've visited several now. 
That is correct. I mean, it's also realized and we get this information from the colleagues who find the objects and characterize them, that each object uh, seems to be different. They have different sizes, obviously, from very small to real big kilometer sizes they can have, uh, and also they can have different shapes. And in addition, what is not so obvious uh, to be uh, recognized, they can have very different composition. So it turns out that those three here, which have all been visited by spacecraft, Itokawa on the left, it's about 500 meters in size, and then you have Ryugu and, and Bennu, and these are all rubble piles, so they are not solid rocks. They are really composed of different pieces of small rocks and dust. And if you want to deflect an object with whatever method, then you need to know what is it made of. And there's a whole range of different uh, proposals what one could do to deflect such an object. And therefore, it's very important to know what they are made of. And it helps. I mean, those three objects that you can see here were visited by a spacecraft. But this was for scientific reasons, just to understand what they are made of. And not it was not the idea to test any deflection methods. Uh, some samples were returned from those objects. And we learn about them. And this is very important if eventually one of these objects comes close and we have to think about deflecting it in reality. Fairly soon now, not too many years from now, we will finally be making a close-up visit to uh, uh, one of those uh, most dangerous kinds of asteroids, those iron uh, nickel or nickel iron uh, asteroids. Uh, that's uh, in an upcoming mission. You know, we've heard, speaking of visiting asteroids from Kelly about observing NEOs, uh, near-Earth objects from a distance, uh, whether it's Earth's surface or our powerful space telescopes, should we also be prepared to send fast spacecraft to examine uh, the threatening NEOs from up close, maybe in flybys? Yes, that is certainly something which is highly desirable. First of all, by such fast missions, which could be done by a very small spacecraft, they are very powerful these days, you can learn about them. And you can get some information on the size. Normally, you see a bit a dot of light, but you don't know, is it a very bright object or not too big? If you see how bright is the dot of light or is it a dark object that it could be much, much larger. And if you want really to deflect it, you have to know what is its real size. So it is very useful to perhaps send a small spacecraft to uh, better characterize it. It might also help to get the real orbit. And uh, if those people like Kelly tell us, oh, it could hit Earth, normally you don't know for sure. So if you fly there, it could help to get a better information on the orbit. Of course, uh, you might also obtain this from ground-based telescopes and radar, but it might help to fly there. So I think it's something that could be done fairly easily, and I'm sure in the future, several of these missions uh, will be realized. Several are in planning, and we can learn a lot. And this could be done on a very short notice if a new interesting object or dangerous object is being discovered. Tell us about HERA. Well, I guess we hear more about these missions, the DART-HERA mission, but it's already one good example of an international cooperation because DART will be built by NASA. It's been built right now and it should test if you just hit the object, could you push it away? And how much could you push it away? And can you hit it the way you like? And then ESA is building the HERA spacecraft that comes a little bit later and that will characterize what has happened. Then you can see how big is the crater and what was really the composition of this object if you just 
bang it uh, very fast, you do not know this. That will really help to test and see the effect such an impact had. I mean, by the way, such a, what we call a kinetic impact, that is the idea you hit it as fast as you can with a spacecraft as big as you can and give it a little push. In any case, the spacecraft will be much, much smaller than the object will be. But if you do it soon enough, then you can push the object away with time so that it will miss Earth. You don't want to destroy it. You don't want to change the orbit completely. But and we want to test the effects. And this can be done by this HERA spacecraft, which comes after the impact event to see what really has happened. You have to think carefully what can be done and when do you do it, and also to calculate how much push is needed in order to deflect such objects. Perhaps one little um, comparison, if you have two cars on a road crossing, you want to avoid them to collide. And you don't have to move the roads, which would be the orbits of these objects. You just have to make sure that the two cars are not there at the same time. And the best way we talk about asteroids is either to push one of the objects forward or to slow it down. You cannot really do this with Earth because Earth is much too big. But such an object, if you push it a little bit, that it crosses this, this road, it, it passes the road crossing a bit sooner or a bit later than the other object, then you avoid a collision. And that is the main mechanism. And it shows it's not so easy if you look at the objects and the massive scale they have. Uh, so far, it's been asteroids, asteroids, asteroids. What about a, a comet, a sneaky comet that we uh, might not get as much of a chance to uh, track for very long before it heads our way? Yes, you are right. I mean, comets are a real risk. Fortunately, there are far less comets which could hit Earth than there are asteroids, which we can find easily. But if a real big comet, several kilometers in size, they tend to be very big, and we only discover it uh, on a very short notice because it comes from way out, from a far distant location. And you can only see it when it starts to devolve a tail. And so it's really a, a difficult thing. I would say this is the next step we have to deal with. First, we try to deal with the more dangerous and more numerous asteroids. But comets are a real threat. But right now, it's difficult to deal with them. But we will work with them. Thanks, Gerhard. Uh, let's go now to Paul Chodas. Paul is manager of the Near Earth Object Program Office. He's based at the Jet Propulsion Lab, very close to where I am right now at uh, Planetary Society headquarters. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Um, Thanks for having your me. First, you're very welcome. Glad you're here. Let's go to your first slide. How many NEOs are we keeping track of? There are increasing numbers, 25,000 and more. And, uh, and these are the real orbits of some of them. Um, we're finding about 2,500 of, of these NEOs every year now. So the, the uh, observatories that Kelly showed at the beginning um, are very productive. But the question then is, uh, are any, do any of these pose a threat? So the group I work in, CNEOS uh, at JPL, um, is charged with the, the, the idea of figuring out what the orbits are of these asteroids and whether or not they have a chance of impacting the Earth. So we do an impact assessment on each one of these. That's an award-winning NASA acronym, you know, CNEOS, uh, the Center for NEO Studies. Here is the CNEOS uh, website, which uh, I, I think you're hoping lots of people will visit. Yes, uh, we are kind of like the, uh, the central repository of the, of the orbit information for NASA's program. Uh, 
Uh, we do the calculations of the orbits. We have lots of tables and data on, on our website. You can uh, go to our website and get predictions of, of where things will be. Close approaches, yes. Um, asteroids become uh, observable when they get near the Earth. And so we often see them coming in from the, from the night side. And many of them are very small, but some of them will be making close approaches. So we keep track of all the close approaches and update this continually. So we often see news items. Um, I know on my phone, I see news items about, you know, upcoming close approach and NASA warns that uh, about a close approach. Now, these asteroids are not heading for the Earth. Uh, I mean, sorry, they're not heading for an impact. They're going to come close, but uh, the asteroids on our close approach list, um, very uh, few of them have any chance of impacting the Earth. So that that's one thing that uh, makes our site worth checking. We have 9,600 that are larger than 140 meters and about 900 that are larger than one kilometer in size. So you see the discovery rate with NASA's funding of all of these telescopes has just been growing exponentially. So the good news there, right, for the most dangerous of these, the ones that are bigger than a kilometer, that red line down at the bottom, pretty flat nowadays. That's a success story, isn't it? It sure is. Uh, we think we found oh, about 95% of the population of the large ones, larger than one kilometer in size. And those are the ones that could result in a global catastrophe if they should hit. So we have kind of retired that risk, essentially. There are only a few left, and the odds that any of those will hit the Earth in the next 100 years are extremely thin. We'll keep looking for all of these asteroids, of course, but, uh, but the larger ones are pretty well taken care of. And now we're focusing on the orange line and getting to the 140 meter in size. And as Kelly said, uh, our goal is to find 90% of that population. Great goal. Then the question is, what type of event would occur if an asteroid of that size should hit the Earth? So the little ones produce bolides or super bolides, um, really bright meteors. But as you go to larger and larger sizes, you airburst, you'll get local devastation. And then in the orange region, you start getting regional to continental to a little below global size damage. And then the green area is the, is the larger ones that I said uh, earlier that we have already found 95% of. Bolides happen about once a year. The five meter objects are pretty common, but the number of uh, NEOs goes down as you go to larger and larger sizes. So for example, a Chelyabinsk size object is, is a super bolide or, uh, or a major airburst somewhere in that area, which is basically a hundred years between impacts of, of that size. And as you go to the orange area, regional scale devastation, the 140 meter sizes, then we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of years on average between the impacts. Now that doesn't mean it can't happen next year or you know, in the next decade, but the odds are against it. For those of uh, the audience who are interested in learning how to deflect an asteroid, we've loaded uh, a realistic simulation onto our website these are hypothetical asteroids that are headed for the Earth. And you are given the opportunity to having your own launch vehicle uh, and you specify when you'd like to deflect this asteroid in terms of years before impact. And you're, you, uh, you say uh, when you want to launch your, your deflector. And this is an example of a kinetic impactor uh, defense mechanism. And you can actually test the real physics on simulated asteroids. And as you devise your missions, you can move that green dot, the current trajectory of the asteroid, you can move it so that it will miss the Earth. Your personal opportunity to save the Earth. For those of us who are old enough to remember the, name, the game Asteroids, 
This is a pretty significant upgrade, I would say. Uh, just really one more thing that uh, you have to tell us about. Uh, even though the Planetary Defense Conference is virtual this year, it still has my favorite part of the conference every year. It is the Planetary Defense Conference exercise, which, as I said, you are sort of the mastermind of. Tell us a little bit, just a little bit about this. Yeah, I, I've been nicknamed the threat master in previous years. Um, I devise a hypothetical case with a certain specified warning. In this case, we had six months between the time the asteroid was discovered and the time when it could hit. And uh, we go through uh, the question of what would we know when? And then we kind of inform the decision makers of what the uncertainty levels are. So there's a lot of talk about probabilities of this and regions of possible impact. And this example is uh, from our exercise where the region of possible impact covers uh, Central Europe in this case. So then we would uh, present this uh, image to decision makers and they would consider, well, what would we do? Is mitigation possible? Are space missions possible? And what about the disaster management? Um, how, how would you handle this situation? Now, in this case, it was many months before impacts, but the uncertainties are very difficult to deal with in decision making. And as the impact got closer and closer, this region shrank, of course, but then, of course, there's less time to react. I cannot tell you how much fun to be in the room when this happens face to face and uh, listen to people who, even though they know it's an exercise and they're reminded on every slide that goes up on the big screen, how tense, how anxious the uh, audience or the participants become as this takes place. I can't wait for uh, uh, the next one of these, hopefully face to face in a couple of years. Thank you, Paul. Much more of our public event at the 2021 Planetary Defense Conference is ahead, including great questions we took from the online audience and a report on the upcoming DART, our double asteroid redirection test mission. Where did we come from? Are we alone in the cosmos? These are the questions at the core of our existence. And the secrets of the universe are out there, waiting to be discovered. But to find them, we have to go into space. We have to explore. This endeavor unites us. Space exploration truly brings out the best in us. Encouraging people from all walks of life to work together, to achieve a common goal, to know the cosmos and our place within it. This is why the Planetary Society exists. Our mission is to give you the power to advance space science and exploration. With your support, we sponsor innovative space technologies, inspire curious minds, and advocate for our future in space. We are the Planetary Society. Join us. We are now honored to welcome Masaki Fujimoto. Masaki is Deputy Director General of the Japanese Space Agency's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science. He has joined us from Japan, where uh, Masaki, I believe it is just past midnight. Thank you for staying up uh, so late to join us. My pleasure. Thank you. Congratulations on the recent magnificent success of Hayabusa 2, JAXA's second spacecraft to return uh, pristine asteroid material to eager scientists on Earth. Where were you when that sample return capsule streaked through the sky on uh, just the 5th of December last year? Yes, I was in Umera where the capsule landed. But even though I was in, I was in the place where, where the capsule landed, I was staring into my PC screen when, the, when you guys were 
enjoying the fireball running across the sky. <laughs> well, I've only seen the video, but it's pretty impressive. But but you were there when the capsule was found in the desert, and uh, that 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 precious sample was uh, carried back to a lab. Yes, I was in the headquarters uh, of the operation team. I didn't witness everything, but I was you know I was involved in all the pro all the procedures. And uh, after landing, uh, it took only fifty seven hours before we brought the sample back to our curation facility. And then a few days later, we opened up the capsule to find uh, 5.4 grams of samples, 50 times more than the minimal requirement. So, so it was a big success. I'm really proud of uh, to be a part of the team. As you should be, you and the entire team. And as you know, we've covered this on Planetary Radio as well. Um, those samples, I don't know if they're being distributed yet, but eventually those are going to go to labs all over the world, aren't they? Yes, yes. So now we're doing the, we're performing the initial curation until uh, June this year. And then for one year, we will perform the initial analysis, like a pre preliminary examination, so that we can, we can uh, create a catalog. Scientists all over the world will understand the science, science potential of the samples. And then starting next summer, we will be distribu distributing the sample to all the scientists interested in analyzing the samples. So they will send the send, submit the propose, proposal to us, and then there will be an AO process. And the uh, selected scientists will have the opportunity. And I know how closely you're cooperating and collaborating uh, with the OSIRIS-REx team, which I believe is returning its sample uh, from Bennu in 2023, if I remember correctly. Yes. Hayabusa 2, yes. of course, your spacecraft was delivering wonderful science long before that sample capsule made it home. Can you briefly recap, uh, highlight the work that the spacecraft was doing when it was, you know, up close and personal with uh, Ryugu? Yes, uh, so it was performing uh, the close proximity operation for one and a half year. And during that one and a half year, uh, well, first of all, when we got to Ryugu, we were so shocked by its unfriendly surface. It's a sample return <laughs> mission, so we have to land on the surface. But when we got there, everywhere on the surface is so rough. So we needed to change the way we land on the surface. So we developed a new way of landing on the surface and getting the samples. Uh, we eventually managed to uh, invent it and made touchdown twice. And the second touchdown was after the impact experiment, which excavated subsurface materials to the surface. We will deploy an impactor and let it reform itself into a bullet and hit the surface and, and make the artificial cr crater. So this has the, you know, this is the closest relevance that this mission has to the planetary defense theme, I, th I think. In, after deploying the impactor, the main spacecraft itself will eva evacuate because you know you don't want to hit the, the debris from the impact experiment to be the spacecraft in a dangerous situation. So instead of the main spacecraft, we deployed a small detached camera, and what we are witnessing here is the crater formation process under the microgravity, and we are learning a lot from the about the crater formation mechanism. And also, also, this impact experiments enabled the subsurface material to come up on the surface from which we grabbed the samples. Just amazing footage. As stunning as these pictures we're now seeing of a helicopter flying on Mars, this is just amazing to see a, a human-made crater forming on asteroid Ryugu. Since this was an impact, what it makes me think of, of course, is the role of planetary defense in the Hayabusa 2 mission. Was this a major component of the mission? 
Well, it's yes and no. We do lead some part of the asteroid exploration program of the of humanity, in a sense. Playing some role in planetary defense is is uh, almost a duty. So this impact experiment has some flavor of it. But what we also learned from the exploration of Ryugu is what's the best way to characterize the, the surface physical condition of a small body. And from our experience at Ryugu, we learned that thermal infrared camera is one of the best instruments to characterize the surface condition. And that's why we are participating in ESA's HERA mission, which was described in, in the previous uh, talk. And we, we are providing a thermal infrared camera so that the the HERA mission will image the surface after the impact experiment by the U.S. component. And then our camera should be one of the key instruments to characterize what the impact experiment was like as a whole. Uh, something else to look forward to in the, the HERA mission uh, coming up, along with everything else that uh, is going to be happening in the next few years. One of the biggest things that will be happening is the uh, DART mission, which we've already mentioned. Nancy Chabot is coordination lead for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, DART, at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. So as we've talked about, uh, DART is a NASA mission to demonstrate this kinetic impactor technology. And what that means is pretty simply, we're going to launch a spacecraft and we're going to target a small asteroid and slam the spacecraft into it. Um, and what this is going to do is it's going to give that asteroid that little nudge that we talked about already, um, just sort of uh, adds up to a change in the asteroid's future path and deflect it. So this is the as a mission to demonstrate this kinetic impactor technology to deflect an asteroid. Um, DART stands for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. The T is for test, very important. This is just a test, it's the first step. This is not an asteroid that's a threat to hit the Earth or on a path to hit the Earth. We're taking this first test step in order to do this technology. And before I go too much further, I really want to say, too, that DART is a team. Um, so I'm really happy to be here today and talk about DART and share DART. But we have hundreds of people at work at APL on this right now. We also have our partner institutions, which bring together. We have scientists around the world who are participating in to make this mission a reality and the success. So it really does take this international collaboration and hundreds of people working to make a mission like this um, on a path to do this first test. What I want to say too is that this is really the ideal target to do this first test is this Didymos system. So the double asteroid uh, redirection test goes to a double asteroid system, and that's what you're seeing here. So there's the big asteroid Didymos, and then Dimorphos, the smaller asteroid, goes around Didymos every 11 hours and 55 minutes, like clockwork. And we know this because telescopes on the Earth have been observing it for years, and so we know this very precisely from all of these measurements that have been done by the Earth-based telescopes. And so what's going to happen is the DART spacecraft's going to come screaming in, actually, 6.6 .6 kilometers per second, 15,000 miles per hour, um, slam into mm. Dimorphos. Um, a few days uh, before that, Licia Cube, which is the light Italian cube set uh, for imaging of asteroids contributed by the Italian Space Agency, will get uh, kicked off. And Licia Cube will get some spectacular images of this impact event from DART. And then it'll make a closest approach by the asteroid about three minutes later and then just continue speeding on its way. But now Lichia Cube is long gone. The DART spacecraft is definitely fully destroyed. So how are we going to know how much we deflected this asteroid? And that's when the Earth-based telescopes come back in to play this really key role. And because this is a binary asteroid system, 
uh, they can measure what that period is now. And we think we're gonna change it by about 10 minutes. So maybe more like 11 hours and 45 minutes, but we don't know actually. That's why we need to do this test on a real asteroid out in space. And then Hera, like we heard about, is gonna come by in 2026 and have all this great characterization to really bring together and we can gather the most information possible about this kinetic impactor technology experiment. So exciting to think that we are actually nearing the point where we will, for the first time, see if we have the capability to deflect an asteroid. And I really just want to say that uh, going back to this team theory, it's been a challenging year in lots of ways, but yet this work has continued. Um, and uh, procedures on top of procedures, and it really is a testament to how much people believe in this project and how dedicated everybody is. Some of the things that'll happen is the rollout solar arrays are going to get um, put onto it. The Draco camera, which is going to be used to help target the asteroid, is going to get put onto this in the in the next few months. And this is all to prepare the mission to be ready to do this kinetic impactor technology demonstration, um, ready to launch in November. Of this year. So it's not very far off. Uh, SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from uh, Vandenberg in California. And uh, we're really excited to be on track for that. Fantastic. Thank you, Nancy. You know, our last panelist is my partner in the What's Up segment of Planetary Radio for over 18 years now. He is the chief scientist for the Planetary Society and the uh, program manager for our LightSail 2 CubeSat that is still up there catching some rays. Welcome, Bruce Betts. Thank you, Matt. Good to see you as usual. Tell us about the big announcement that you made on behalf of the Planetary Society this week, uh, using the PDC as the background. Uh, we've announced another round of our Gene Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grant Program, which uh, funds astronomers, amateur and professional around the world. You can see a display of where we've funded over the last 24 years. And we fund them to upgrade their observatories in whether it be a new camera or re-illuminizing a mirror or making them more robotically controlled so they can get more data. And uh, although now most of the professional surveys, as Kelly noted, discover most of the near-Earth objects, there's still a need for lots of observations from lots of places for follow-up observations that give uh, position on the sky so that uh, people like Paul Chodas can calculate orbits and figure out whether it's going to hit Earth. And then also characterization of these over time and observing them, things like light curves, brightness with time, so you can figure out their spin rate or whether one asteroid is actually two, like DART will go explore a binary system. Um, and also what they're made of, things that you'll need to know if uh, you are going to have to deflect them at some point. So we have just announced an open call for proposals. They're due at the end of July. And uh, you can find out more at planetary.org slash NEO grants. Also, something brand new from the Planetary Society. What are the new STEP grants? Yeah, we just started a, a new grants program, Open International Call for Proposals, pre-proposals due May 26, called STEP science and technology empowered by the public because we we are a member organization these things only happen because of members and donors to our program and now we're able to offer some larger grants through a competitive process across all sorts of space exploration and technology areas but one of our three core enterprises is planetary defense defending from asteroids so hopefully we'll get some uh, some things that don't fit into the shoemaker neo 
grants, we'll find out that we've got some good proposals to the new STEP grants program. You and uh, our other colleagues at the Society, uh, we got to have a good time coming up with this acronym. We don't usually have get to have the fun everybody else does coming up with clever acronyms like that, the rest of you on the panel. Oh, what I else? make acronyms I, I... for everything, but they get rejected periodically. <laughs> True. Yeah, rightfully so. There's so much more that the Society does, plug, plug, in ways to help us you know, improve the understanding of and, and the support for planetary defense. Uh, we've got a lot of free resources on our website that you can find at planetary.org slash defense, having to do with planetary defense. Uh, we have everything from frequently asked questions, things about Apophis, the asteroid doing a close flyby in 2029, general frequently asked questions. There's an online asteroid defense class that I teach you in uh, just over an hour's time, give you a basic introduction to asteroid defense and the types of things that our amazing panel work on. And uh, we've also got infographics, posters, and then a budgetary analysis for the U.S. program over time from our uh, political advocacy guru, Casey Dreyer. And other great videos. Those of you who joined us before the uh, start of the hour, you might have been treated to that series of uh, dinosaur videos that Bruce produced uh, with uh, our staff, uh, Mark Boyan, our great video producer. Absolutely uh, entertaining. And those are all available on the website as well. I'll just add that the Planetary Society is proud to be a primary sponsor of the Planetary Defense Conference, something that uh, we are really quite proud of. I was just going to say this amazing conference brings together experts from around the world in all aspects of asteroid threat every two years, and uh, we're just proud to be a part of it. And how we made it. Thank you, panelists. You've done an admirable job of presenting what each of you could have, we could have used the entire hour to present. From Misty West, who asked us on Facebook, and this is a great question, does the launch of all the Starlink and other microsatellites, all those big constellations of satellites that are now being launched, have an impact on the surveys for asteroids that Kelly told us about. And I don't know, Kelly, do you want to take that first? But any of you are welcome to jump in. Sure, I can say a few words. The surveys already deal with satellites that pass through their fields of view and leave streaks in their images. So it's something that they've been dealing with already. It will get worse with the increase in satellites. Uh, and it is more of a problem toward pre-dawn and uh, uh, sunset, those times of day when the sun really lights them up relative to the sky. So it's something that they're already used to dealing with and continuing to deal with, better looking at, okay, how, how to deal with that larger volume. So it, it, will, it will affect them, but it's not, it's not shutting anything down yet. So no worries there. Of course, we, we do have other astronomers who have expressed a good deal of concern uh, about uh, what may happen when these thousands upon thousands of new satellites uh, start circling uh, our, our planet. Does anybody else want to jump in on this? Well, let me jump in um, just by saying that the we have an advantage over the astronomers who observe galaxies and that sort of thing. Um, asteroids move so that we have the opportunity if if they go behind a satellite and the and the streak of a satellite clobbers one image of the asteroid, we may get it another time. So I think it will kind of degrade the efficiency, perhaps, if there are tens of thousands of satellites. But I think that surveys will still be able to find asteroids. That's reassuring. Hot Pop Robot, love that, uh, who asked us on YouTube, 
did the impact by Hayabusa on Ryugu, were we able to tell if it may have changed its orbit in a measurable way, even if only a tiny bit? Masaki, that's probably one for you. Well, first of all, the size of the crater is like 20 meter diameter and the depth is like three meter. So it's really a tiny uh, impact experiment. And I don't think uh, there's a way, well, the amount was really small if there was any you know, deflection effect. And I don't think we have any way of measuring the delta created by the impact. So no, no, short answer is no. I'm gonna speak for Isaac Newton here. Uh, and Nancy, I'll ask you, why do we have more confidence uh, looking at the laws of motion that DART will generate a possibly detectable change in, in that motion. So one of the reasons that DART is using this double asteroid system is because we're not changing the asteroid necessarily as much around the sun as we are changing the small moon asteroid that goes around the main asteroid. And that's really what's going to make it more measurable and using the things here on Earth that will be able to bring this in and have a, a deflection that the Earth-based telescopes can very easily measure. And I should mention that that's happening in a late September of 2022. And that time is chosen because the asteroid and the Earth are actually minimize their distance. And so the telescopes are gonna on the Earth are gonna be able to get really high precision data to really nail down what this deflection is because of that time. And that's why 2022 for this DART system is the time to do this first test. Let me add a little math here. The, uh, the projectile velocity makes a big difference. And uh, DART will be screaming into that little moon and transferring a lot of its momentum and the mass of the spacecraft as well. Whereas with Ryugu, it was relatively, uh, it was a little bit less velocity and certainly a smaller projectile, so less deflection. Dean Sherman, who on YouTube asked us, if in the future we establish bases on the moon and Mars, could we also use those to track NEOs? And I'll add to that, would there be substantial value in using those other uh, vantage points. Kelly? Well, certainly it'd be great to take advantage of any vantage points, but again, uh, groups that have been assembled to, to study you know, how to best do this have pointed to uh, space telescopes as, as being the way to go. And it's something that you can actually do now. Uh, we've launched space telescopes. And so if we want to keep going on the survey, we need to go with the technology we have now, launch the space telescope, the NEO surveyor that we need now, to keep uh, racking up the discoveries. However, as these other technologies uh, you know, come into being, like the ability to have telescopes on the moon, then absolutely those should be added, just like we have telescopes distributed around the Earth. So there's no reason why not, but there's, there's technological challenges to overcome. And so uh, it's something that would be further down the road than the capabilities that we have right now at NASA with uh, our ability to launch space telescopes. Anybody else uh, see value in uh, putting telescopes up on our nearest neighbor or uh, on the red planet? Ask a bunch this. of astronomers if we want more telescopes, I think. So, yeah, <laughs> people love telescopes. So, uh, uh, but, yeah. I mean, but Kelly's right. The space-based surveyor is really what we need for the asteroid um, issue, and we need that as soon as possible. Another endorsement. Kelly, let me, let me stop there and ask you, what is the current status of that spacecraft, which is, as you know, all of us at the Planetary Society have been looking forward to, along with you, for years. Right. Uh, uh, currently, the uh, NEO surveyor is uh, going through development. It's going to. Um, it's being developed toward later this summer. It's uh, key decision point B, which uh, will take it further uh, through 
developing the, the design of this space-based telescope. And so it's the sort of thing that is continuing as funding allows at NASA to keep that development going. So here is a question from S. McNeil on YouTube, uh, who asked, which asteroid is uh, forecasted to come closest in the next century? And how close is the, uh, how close is it forecasted to come? And how large is it? I think the name of that asteroid has uh, already come up, hasn't it, Paul? Yes, I think you're referring to Apophis, which will approach uh, closer than the satellites in, in on Friday the 13th of 2029, April, uh, April, Friday the 13th. Because of the work that you and others are able to do now, how do we know that you're not off by a degree, a minute, a second, uh, and that it really is going to come between us and the geosynchronous satellites? Uh, I have a recent story, and that is what we were able to predict the uh, occultation of Apophis. And we heard a little bit about this during the uh, Planetary Defense Conference. Uh, we know the orbit of Apophis so accurately that we can predict the shadow of that a star, the starlight, would cast on the Earth and deploy observers to watch the shadow and, and uh, see when, the, uh, when Apophis occulted that star. And so our knowledge of the location of Apophis is down to, you know, within hundreds of meters. And this is typical of an asteroid that is really well observed by optical uh, astronomers and by radar, so that we know the orbit of Apophis really, really accurately, and we can predict the close approach in 2029 with superb accuracy. Now, a better question is what, what might happen if it goes through a keyhole and it could possibly come back and hit later? The recent radar measurements of Apophis have enabled us to even eliminate that possibility. So asteroid Apophis is now completely removed from our risk of asteroids that could hit the Earth over the next hundred years because we know its orbit so accurately. That makes me think of another question, and it brings up the tragic, terrible loss of the great dish at uh, Arecibo in, in Puerto Rico, which of course was also uh, capable of doing radar examinations of uh, asteroids and, and other objects in the solar system. For any of you, how big of a loss is that dish and, and should we be looking to replace it? Well, it is a huge loss to the program. Uh, NASA was funding the radar that was done at Arecibo, which uh, is an NSF facility and, and had uh, its other astronomical and atmospheric uh, missions there. It was the most sensitive uh, radar system on the planet. We still have the Goldstone Solar System radar, which is very capable and it has the steerability uh, that Arecibo didn't have, but it doesn't have the sensitivity. And so it was able to uh, help kick Apophis off the risk list, which is fantastic. But there are uh, there, there's still limitations on the sensitivity. And so it is something that is, uh, it is lacking. And, and it's the sort of thing that hopefully in the future, maybe in coordination uh, with other agencies to look at possibilities for for uh, you know what could what capabilities might be available in the future uh, across the government for that sort of uh, capability, Gerhard, you may be the best person to ask about this. Although Masaki, maybe you're aware of something uh, with Apophis that that close pass still several years away. Is there discussion of sending up a spacecraft to observe it more closely than even though it'll be coming so close to Earth to get you know really close within? tens or hundreds of meters. Yes, obviously that is a very good opportunity to visit an asteroid which is known to be uh, something like 
300 meters or slightly larger. The orbit is very well known, as we heard, it will pass within a certain distance. And this is known up to a few tens of meters, the separation from Earth. So it's a unique opportunity to learn about the composition, also to test the spacecraft capabilities um, and visit it. Because we have plenty of time for a planning and several activities are planned to send a spacecraft, just a reconnaissance spacecraft, to Apophis when it makes this very close approach uh, on Friday the 13th in 2029. It will also be visible from the ground and I guess everything, including radar and I hope a new radar facility will be available, uh, will be put in place and also certainly spacecraft are planned to be sent there to get as much information as possible because it will come close and it should not be too difficult uh, to reach it. Of course, we try to avoid impacts with Earth, but this is for our group if the object is big, if a serious damage uh, is expected. But smaller objects, as we saw from one of the charts from Paul, hit Earth all the time. So very small ones are just meteors or fireballs, but also objects can get bigger, some meter size, but they can be observed in space by optical telescopes or by radar. And of course, one aim is to find some that do eventually hit Earth and you do not even try to deflect them. That could be harmless, but you see them coming. You can predict where will they impact. You can estimate what is the composition and study the effects. And so far, this has happened four times that astronomers, planetary defense experts managed to see an object coming that uh, hit Earth afterwards. They were all just in the meter class. No damage was done. In a few cases, meteorites were recovered on the ground. And it's a very good test case to see them coming and see what happens. Are our predictions all right? Another great development. Masaki, would you and your colleagues at uh, JAXA like to see a mission to Apophis uh, in 2029 or thereabouts? Why not? just want to mention that Hayabusa 2 is on its second mission. It's now in the extended mission phase, and it will make a close flyby of one of the near-Earth asteroids. And it will rendezvous with another near-Earth asteroid in in 2031. And both of them are potentially hazardous asteroids. So Hayabusa 2 mission now has a more planetary defense flavor than before. So it's not Apophis itself, but you know, Hayabusa 2 is still working to contribute to the planetary defense. I wonder if maybe you could also say something about the MMX mission, which is in a sense an asteroid uh, encounter mission, even though it's going to the moons of Mars. True. The science theme is about the bringing who brought water uh, to Earth, which was born dry. Hayabusa 2 is pursuing that. As by analyzing samples from, from Ryugu, we will try to answer that question. But you know, one sample is not enough. So we'll, we will get more samples from Phobos, one of the Martian moons. And uh, we will address the same question, analyzing the samples brought back from Phobos. But at the same time, we may find some Martian samples that's been sitting on the surface of Phobos for a long time. So bringing samples back from Phobos may enable us to bring some Martian samples at the same time. In that sense, this MMX mission is our first Martian Mars exploration program for JAXA. It's not just a small body mission anymore, so it has a Martian exploration flavor for JAXA. Bruce, does, does Apophis seem to present a, a, a nice opportunity for public outreach about planetary defense? Why, yes, it does, man. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, we've got a an asteroid that's coming by that's big, 300 meters-ish, 
but not scheduled to hit, but actually will be visible by a good portion of the planet, including Europe. And it'll just be a, a dot passing in the sky, but I think it'll be a great opportunity to raise awareness of the asteroid threat, awareness of the work that people like those on our panel and at the conference are doing, and to hopefully move us towards greater safety in the future from asteroid impact. I don't really expect any of you to have an answer for it. It's uh, from Mel Powell, who I happen to know is a wise guy who listens to Planetary Radio. He asked us on Facebook, can we purchase Planetary Society Apophis protection helmets in case Paul Chodas is off by a degree or so? Uh, yes, Mel, we'll get right on that and add that to our store very soon, won't we, Bruce? Oh, yes. Yes, we will. <laughs> um, Paul, here's one. Maybe you could explain a term you use. Uh, Nikki Hyman on Facebook asked, what is a keyhole? What is the, that keyhole you referred to uh, in this context? A great question. It's kind of like a gateway near the Earth so that if the, a, an asteroid comes in and misses the Earth, if it goes through this little gateway, and sometimes it's, it's less than a kilometer in size, uh, sometimes it's you know tens of meters in size, but we can calculate if the asteroid goes through the little gateway, the Earth's gravity will bend the asteroid's orbit, of course, and then it will go into another or a different orbit around the sun. But by our calculations, it could possibly hit. So when we take a look at the math and we run that backwards, we can figure out the size of the gateway that would lead to a possible impact years later. So that we call a keyhole. Here's our last question, folks. Uh, it comes from uh, Jay Harkey on YouTube. Are there any resources available to educate amateur astronomers about how to collect the necessary information on NEOs? Maybe become part of that uh, tracking that uh, Bruce talked about that we fund through the Shoemaker NEO grant program. Uh, maybe also an idea of the equipment that might be required to become a serious observer of asteroids and NEOs. Uh, I think probably any of you could begin to address this, but Bruce, let's start with you. I'm not sure there's a one-stop shop. I will point out the, the groups that do this. Some are individuals, some are groups of amateur astronomers, some are professionals. Uh, they, they have been doing this for a while and have very uh, pretty darn advanced setups, not just pulling out your, uh, your six-inch telescope in the backyard. So my suggestion would be to check out some of the observatories. You can find the Shoemaker Neo grant winners and uh, look around for where, uh, what they've got online and at least get an idea of what type of facilities they have from, uh, from our website and reports on those at planetary.org slash NEO grants, one word. Anybody else who wants to jump in on this, please do. And maybe also to say something about the importance of the contribution of amateurs. Kelly, did I see your hand? Yes, I was just going to comment. Well, first of all, since you mentioned the important contribution of amateurs, there are, uh, there are some who have some, it's hard to even call them amateur facilities because they're very substantial and uh, with, with very good capabilities and, and actually contribute uh, follow-up observations of asteroids to the Minor Planet Center. Some of them are members of the International Asteroid Warning Network, so it's fantastic. I was also going to mention kind of at the other end of the spectrum, if you, you don't want to go out and buy equipment and you just want to put your toe in the water, there are a lot of citizen science opportunities, both in asteroids and in, in other areas. And NASA has pages on citizen science. There are citizen science funded by NASA. 
the program that uh, I manage uh, funds the International Ast uh, Astronomical Search Collaboration, uh, which allows school groups to do uh, citizen science with images that come from the surveys funded by NASA, trying to find maybe things that were missed in, uh, in the processing. And so there are ways to get involved or just reaching out to your local um, astronomy club or museums once they open up. <laughs> Uh, just to at least, again, dip your toe in the water and find out a little more. And, and then, of course, you mentioned Bruce's websites there on the Planetary Society website. Uh, that and other areas are fantastic for, for education on, on how, to, uh, how to learn about this, just to see how far you want to go. There, well, there are some good resources that you can get. Eyes on the Solar System comes to mind at, at JPL, on the JPL website. You can put yourself near an asteroid or on the orbit of an asteroid, all virtually, of course. That's a good way to learn about the, the dynamics of asteroids. And our website, I'll have to plug it one more time, as I, as I often do, the CNEOS group provides uh, the complete list of all the close approaches. You can uh, investigate uh, you know, what, the, what the next close approaches are, and uh, it's, a, it's a great source for all the stats on uh, NEOs. Thank you, panelists. And uh, much more importantly, for everything that you are doing and will be doing in the future to help prepare humanity to um, defend this beautiful planet that we all share. We also want to thank all of you out there who joined us uh, for this public event today. We will, I hope, see you in two years at the 8th Planetary Defense Conference. Thanks again, and have a great day. Want to see our great panelists, their slides and videos? Drop by planetary.org slash live for the complete event. But not just yet, because Bruce and What's Up are moments away. Time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio, fresh from the Planetary Defense Conference, uh, where uh, they saved the Earth, I believe. The chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Batts, congratulations. Well, it was an exercise. Things could have worked out better, but... The real Earth is fine and has good views of the night sky, so um, I got a lot to say, so I'm just going to skip to that if you don't mind. But I'm so curious because Paul Chodas didn't tell us the end of the exercise. Was Central Europe wiped out? I can neither confirm nor deny the wiping out of Central Europe. It was an exercise. It was a very, very challenging exercise, as Paul probably discussed with you. He was truly devious, and but it got people thinking about those uh, really complex things where you don't have enough time. The real bottom line is you need the observation so you have the time. Because if you don't have the time, you you just ha are so limited in what you can do other than evacuate. It's hard to evacuate all of Central Europe. See, I'm glad you didn't go straight to the sky. But now we're ready to go up there. Okay. Uh, we got planets. We got all the visible naked eye planets are visible, although Venus is really tough. It's uh, super bright, but it's very low in the west shortly after sunset. Mercury is above it, not as bright, but a little higher up for the next few weeks. And they are coming closer together. Venus will get higher and easier to see. Mercury will get lower. They will be a half degree apart on May 28th. That's uh, about the width of the full moon. Speaking of the moon, it will be hanging out near Venus and on the 12th, though, again, very tough to see, and that's right after this comes out. The 13th, hanging out with Mercury, the 15th with Mars. Mars is up in the southwest looking reddish in Gemini. And then in the pre-dawn, 
we've got Jupiter and Saturn very easy to see now in the east, southeast, uh, and the moon will hang out with Saturn on the 31st, Jupiter on the 1st. <sighs> but wait, don't order yet. <laughs> the best is yet to come. I've got a total lunar eclipse I've arranged for you. Ooh. Actually, I won't claim arranging it because half the world will be mad at me for skipping them. Uh, total lunar eclipse, May 26th, thanks to uh, International Dateline. It's May 26th, wherever you are, centered basically on the Pacific Ocean. So if you're in Eastern Asia, uh, Australia, New Zealand, you'll be able to see it starting in the evening of the 26th. And if you're in the Eastern Pacific, as we are, Matt, uh, you'll be able to see it in the pre-dawn skies, and if uh, you're very far off that center, you you won't be able to see it. It's a short totality this time. It's about 15 minutes only of totality. The moon is just passing through off-center in the shadow of the Earth, and so it's a short totality. You can find out more at the NASA Eclipse page or uh, timeanddate.com does a nice job of customizing it for your location, what you'll be able to see. Man, that is busy. Uh, so will Southern California be in the path of totality? Yes, except for the most southerly part of it because of you. <laughs> no, yes, California, uh, the West Coast will see it totality. By the time you're in the middle of North America, middle of the U.S., uh, you'll be seeing it just in totality at sunrise. And if you're on the East Coast, you won't be seeing the eclipse much, much at all. And if you're in Europe, well, there'll be more. There'll be others. Just be glad you survived the uh, exercise if you're in Europe. God, <laughs> just be glad this is only a test. Should this have been a real asteroid impact? Well, let's make sure there's not one. Okay. We move on to space fact. Man, I thought it would never end. I thought it'd gone farther, but uh, I just figured everyone would already hate me. So <laughs> I like this one. The Perseverance Mars rover, you've probably heard of this. It is about the same mass as the car, the Chevy Spark. It only weighs currently 38% of a Chevy Spark since all Chevy Sparks are on Earth. And the one Perseverance is in Mars gravity, but their mass is about the same. I was going to say something about the Chevy Spark, but uh, I don't want to get in trouble with General Motors, so I won't. <laughs> That's interesting. I've heard it compared to a golf cart. I guess you could compare the Spark to a golf cart as well. Yeah, it's hard to find a, a car that's uh, that low a mass, but it's uh, it's massive, dude. And the Spark is not. Good on you, Chevy. <laughs> so much for that sponsorship. <laughs> we move on rapidly to the trivia contest. And after that comment, I think you won't be surprised when we find out who the asteroid Kaplan was not named for. But we will find out who the asteroid Kaplan was named after. How'd we do, Matt? Got a really nice response. A whole bunch of very sympathetic listeners. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll hear from a few of them, but uh, first, tell us, who is it named after? It is named after Cousin Samuel. Uncle Sam. Uncle Sa <laughs> Your Uncle Sam, who ironically, perhaps, is a Russian-Soviet uh, astronomer, Samuel Aronovich Kaplan. Lived from 1921 to 1978. He was a Russian astronomer and astrophysicist 
at Lyov University Observatory in the Ukraine and at the Radiophysical Research Institute in Nizhny Novgorod in Russia. Uh, he did a bunch of you know, astronomy stuff with white dwarfs and uh, solar radiation pulsars, that kind of stuff. Are we related? A lot of you wondered. I don't know. I've never had a genealogy study or DNA or anything like that. I don't know that he probably didn't either. Uh, maybe a descendant of his. Yeah, I'm guessing he didn't have a DNA test at that time. Okay, go ahead. Robert Johannesson in Norway discovered the same thing you did, that uh, this Kaplan, that Kaplan, I should say, worked at the Radio Physical Research Institute, where they do research in the fields of radio, radio astronomy, radio <laughs> engineering. You, you see where I'm going here. So radio. <laughs> it, it unites all the Kaplans of the world. I tell you, yeah, that's the apple doesn't fall far from the from the institute, I guess. Here's our winner. She's a first timer, Jennifer Dobbins in uh, the state of Florida, which is a state of mine. Jennifer, congratulations! You got it right with Samuel uh, Aronovich Kaplan, and I believe that Jennifer has won the last copy of the new Pocket Atlas of Mars, uh, which is that terrific little book. <laughs> little pocketbook. It's, it'd have to be a big pocket, but it's uh, it's still kind of pocket-sized, assembled by uh, Henrik Hargate. Jennifer, I bet you'll be able to get a little cutout, a little overlay of the state of Florida that you can use on these beautiful maps. I'm looking at mine of California right now that I can see right through. Uh, also from Europlanet, the central European hub. And that's uh, the last one of those that we're going to give away. You may be able to guess what we're going to give away in the new contest but here's some other stuff first. Mark Dunning in Florida. Imagine my shock and disappointment when I learned it wasn't named after R. Kaplan. I mean, sure, Samuel was probably a great guy and all, but come on, Minor Planet Center. There's room for two Kaplans in our sky. And maybe even more. From Elijah Marshall in Australia, you guys need to get in contact with the Catalina Sky Survey and get Matt and Bruce's names on asteroids. After all, Bill already has 19695 Bill Nye. I didn't know the boss had an asteroid. Not surprising, I guess. Ours will be better. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're kind of coming to that. Uh, Cameron Landers in Texas. Best of luck to Bruce at the Planetary Defense Conference. He sent this before the conference, of course. They'll need it once they have to deal with the soon-to-be-discovered 2021 Matt Danger Kaplan Perhaps he'll, think, <laughs> perhaps he'll think twice about using his middle name. Esan Beglu in Ontario, Canada. Now I'm wondering what Bruce's full name is. Is the asteroid 21506 Betsil named after him? Sure. That's, <laughs> the Betsils changed our name from... No, it's not. It's, not, it's definitely not. <laughs> Michael Caspol in Germany. Maybe the rubber asteroids could go by the name Matt Kaplan? Ooh, I love that. <laughs> uh, all of them or just, just one? From our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, Kaplan is an asteroid. We'll visit it someday and make it part of what will then be called the OPA. Expanse reference for those of you who aren't immediately aware of it. It honors astrophysicist and Samuels his name. So when will Matt, our friendly host, receive his claim to fame? Finally, this uh, major bit of hope from Edwin King in the UK. Hang in there, Matt. 
you might get an exoplanet. Ooh. <laughs> Why stop there? Let's violate all the rules and uh, <laughs> give you maybe a dwarf planet uh, in the solar system. That'd be appropriate, wouldn't it? Or, yeah. or we could rename Uranus. I mean, everyone's always been uncomfortable with that in the English-speaking world. So let's, uh, it was supposed to be named after King George. Let's name it after King Matt. I guess if it's my planet, I guess I would be royalty there. So I think that's appropriate. And we'd be happy to send you there if we possibly can. Yes, yes, I should have known. We're ready. You're so ready. Coming back to near-Earth asteroids, here's your task. Name all the near-Earth asteroids that spacecraft have touched. Oh. All the near-Earth asteroids that spacecraft have touched. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Ooh, be careful with this one, everybody. You have until the 19th, that'd be Wednesday, May 19, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. And have you guessed it? I got your near-Earth asteroid right here. It's made out of rubber, and it could be yours if uh, if random.org picks you and you've got the right answer for this one. Keep those uh, cards and letters coming. And uh, Rubber asteroid two. Matt Kaplan, the prize on this week's Planetary Radio. Matt Danger Kaplan. I like that. I think I'm going to change my middle name. Say goodnight, Bruce. Goodnight, Bruce. Ha <laughs> ha. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what around your house you would like to name Matt Kaplan. We used to have a dog house, which... <laughs> <laughs> would have been appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> then it would just be confusing because Matt would always be in the mat. He's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. And he's always right here with us inside What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. And is made possible by its members who are just trying to save the world. You can become a planetary defender at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverdez, our associate producer, Josh Doyle, composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.